Before we get started with this new episode of Inside Music Cast, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for their patience during our three-month hiatus. The past several months have been very busy for Eddie and myself, and we couldn't wait to get back to creating new Inside Music Cast episodes. We have several great guests on the horizon, so be sure to keep up with us on our Facebook page for the very latest news about upcoming interviews, our Pick of the Day feature, and posts from our incredible team of correspondents. Now, let's kick things off with our latest Inside Music Cast episode featuring Bill Maxwell. Bill Maxwell's talents stretch far beyond his drumming skills. Over the years, the Oklahoma native has become a first-call L.A. session drummer, arranger, composer, and producer, whose career began in a blues band and continued to a producer-drummer role with Andre Crouch and the Disciples. His career blossomed as he collaborated with artists such as Luther Vandross, Kirk Whalum, The Crusaders, Freddie Hubbard, and The Winans. Bill has recently played the role as music director for performances at the White House by playing for President Obama and the First Lady. His abilities and discography are vast, and we welcome Bill Maxwell to Inside Music Cast. Hey, Bill, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you, Bill. You know, you've been an influencer in the L.A. Uh, West Coast session scene and Christian jazz fusion scene for, for, for decades. And uh, most of our listeners know that you've worked as a producer, musical director, arranger, drummer. So, you know, thank you for uh, spending time with us. We've never spent this much time with a guy from Oklahoma. That's right. I'm not a part of the L.A. scene. I'm an Okie. You're an Okie. <laughs> yeah. Still an Okie. No doubt. You know where Norman is, right? <laughs> I do. Where, I know where Norman is. <laughs> One of, uh, just, just as a little footnote, uh, um, a gentleman who, who works for me, apart from Inside Music Cast, he's from Norman, Oklahoma, and he always rubs it in our face that how faithful the, the Okies are over there, especially in football. Yeah, I used to play at an after-hours <laughs> club called the Blue Onion Club in Norman. Yeah. When I was a teenager. Really, really. That's interesting. Well, our purpose is, you know, we want to get to know you a little bit from, from your upbringing and that type of thing. We know of the work you've done, but sometimes we don't know where you, you know, are sometimes artists really come from. But, you know, you were sort of baptized into the music scene. I mean, uh, was it, uh, is, was it your dad that was a jazz pianist or was that your mom? No, my mother. My mother was, though I, unfortunately, uh, she died when I was two months old, so I never knew her. Yeah. Uh, but I was raised uh, mostly by her parents, my mm-hmm. grandparents, and uh, they loved music. And they had me in a music preschool at two years old, where mm-hmm. you, you know, where you go, little kids go hang out all day, but they you play play around with instruments, and they kind of teach you basic stuff. And that, so I I learned to read treble clef before I learned to read words. Wow, <laughs> that that that's interesting. Um, so it was basically your parents that first discovered your abilities, really. My yeah. grandparents. Your grandparents, yeah. yeah. Grandparents that they, you know, I mean, I look at it now. They claim I, I don't remember this. That when I was two years old, I picked up a, they had a violin around the house. I picked it up and played along with the radio, and it was perfect. But now I realize all you have to do with those open strings is just play in a rhythm. It'll sound like you're doing something. But they thought, you know, they could sense that I had a sense of rhythm to the music that was that was coming out of the, you know, the Grand old Opry. And so they, uh, you know, they put me in that, and I. I played around with different instruments all my life and started playing more seriously when I was about 10, right after my father died when I was 10. And after that, I started playing piano. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So that piano was my instrument up until I picked up drums at 12. Well, mentioning 12, I mean, when you were 
only 12, you, you played your first professional gig, you know, for uh, a blues man by the name of uh, Jesse Ed Davis. And well, I was 13 when I played with him. Okay. I, my first my first gig when 12 was with a band you'd never want to hear. <laughs> we, we knew three songs, and we played them over and over again, and everybody just left. Uh, but uh, I went with a friend who was auditioning for Jesse Ed Davis's band. It was a band called the Continentals. And uh, he auditioned, and then some, you know, someone, he suggested I play. And uh, back then, it was Eddie Davis. Eddie asked me to be in his band, I, I think because he needed someone to carry his guitar amp. And, <laughs> and then, so I did that for him. <laughs> but I learned a lot, and he was a, uh, he was a great guitar player even then. Yeah. Uh, just had naturally the same style, and mm-hmm. uh, I loved him greatly. You know, it's it's funny because I, I dug into a little bit about his music, and you know, he was from Norman, Oklahoma, as we mentioned a little earlier. Uh, he was a Native well, American. He was born. He lived in Oklahoma City, in eastern Oklahoma City. Really? Uh, yeah. He, uh, he he went to uh, I think it was uh, Eastern High School, which was a all black or Douglas High School it was an all black school, so mostly blacks are Indians. Mm-hmm. You know, it was still a lot of prejudice towards uh, towards Native Americans, and obviously. My school was segregated. Oklahoma was totally segregated wow. at, th- at that time. Wow. Well, he, you know, he, he actually had a couple really, I mean, he was a great artist. I, mean, we, I dug into some of his music, and I did remember his tune, which one tune is, is, is every night is a Saturday night. And, and it, was, it was classic for his type of sound. But unfortunately, I guess it, uh, you know, he, he took his own life early. And Well, drug addiction is uh, yeah. So terrible, and I don't know what it is what it is with Native Americans. There's so many of them that just mm-hmm. became alcoholics, and they stopped having kids. And it's like the the people are just, just started disappearing. Yeah. Uh, but he uh, he was so sweet, and uh, and you know to see him turn into a to a heroin addict was just awful. Yeah. Mm. Awful. Well, you know, th- some, you know, talk about his his band a little bit. Did you did you ever mix with uh, a couple of the players that were also in that band that? Later on, went to to have pretty decent gigs. Uh, did you play with Jerry Fisher at all, or not? Yeah. Did you? Yeah, I mean, Jerry Fisher and I were really good friends, and I I played with him. I uh, uh, I played on a record that uh, I think when I was nineteen or twenty, mm-hmm. no, I was maybe twenty one. He was doing it in New York. I was in Boston playing with the band. I I was in the Third Avenue Blues Band, and I came down to New York to visit Jerry and gosh. Uh, Steve Tyrell was producing Jerry yeah. Fisher, and he was Jerry, Steve Tyrell was also producing Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Exactly, which is how Jerry got that job. And so the, something happened on the session; the drummer left, and I ended up doing it. Uh, but but Jerry, you know, I, I I grew up around Jerry. I was fifteen when I started playing nightclubs, fourteen or fifteen, full time in Oklahoma City. And Jerry Fisher and the Night Beats were the top band in town. Wow, that that's interesting, and uh, and one other guy that you played with also was was or potentially was uh, guitarist uh, John Selleck, who mm-hmm. later went on to play with Donovan. Did yeah. you play with him too? Yeah, he was he was in Jesse Ed's band, played bass. Uh huh. Okay. All right. Cool. Really. Piano too. Yeah, John's a good guy. Yeah. You know the the Third Avenue Blues Band uh, was produced by T Bone Burnett back in '69. Uh, you recorded with T Bone, right? Yeah, it was T Bone and a guy named Charlie Carey. Yeah, uh, we were we. Uh, you know, when I got out of high school, uh, we wanted to go on the road, and we signed with a, a management group called Ken Rand Entertainment out of Fort Worth, Texas, and they had a band called the Big Beats. And we, you know, we we kind of moved down to Dallas, Fort Worth area, and we were playing clubs. There was a, in those days, there was a lot of music venues, 
uh, and you'd, you know, you'd see around the corner Kenny Rogers in the first edition were playing at a club, and there was bands mm-hmm. everywhere. And we we played at the place called the Tracer Club, and Charlie Carey and T Bone heard us. And T Bone, I think I was I was ni- eighteen or ni- nineteen, and T Bone was twenty, and he had a studio already on the studio, and so we went in and cut some demos at his studio, and we got yeah. a record deal off of it. That's very cool. Well, things really changed for you in, in 72 when you moved to L.A. And, and uh, the reason, of course, was you joined uh, Andre Crouch's band and Andre Crouch and the Disciples. And uh, I was just thinking, did you have uh, or you must have had some sort of Christian or contemporary gospel music background before that. Is that right or, or did you not? None. Wow. None. Uh, wow. You, know, I, I, you know, but most of the people think of me, a lot of people think of me as a, a gospel drummer. Uh, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I would go to church with my grandparents, and they would go in the church, and I'd slip out the back door and go to the drugstore and hang out. <laughs> and I, I didn't really grow up in church. Yeah, okay. Uh, but I had a, I had a, a, a serious experience with the Lord after some people talking to me and just the, reading the Bible that was so strong, it changed my life, and it ended up uh, the same thing happened to Hadley Hawkinsmith who I'd also known since I was 15, and yeah. Harlan Rogers, who I'd known since I was 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we all became Christians right about the same time, and Fletch Wiley. And we started a band uh, called Sunlight, and we went to the, a former drummer who was a preacher at a mission in Oklahoma that dealt with drug addicts and winos, and we started playing music there. And they started to having you know, like six-night-a-week services, and we ended up doing that for... Uh, about eight or nine months, yeah. and Andre Crouch heard about us through Kenneth Copeland, and came in and heard us play. And he said, "I want you guys to be my band." And he kept <laughs> at it. We didn't really know if we wanted to do it. And then uh, finally, we we were. On, I was on a short tour. We were backing up Reba Rambo and Randy Matthews, and Andre found me and uh, said, "I need you to come to L.A. I think we're going to be on the Tonight Show." And I, I'm not, you know, not totally confident with my drummer and guitar player. He, so he flew Hadley and I out, and that was in July of 1972, and that led to my moving to California, and eventually, you know, being in his band, the other guys left, and then I started producing his records. Wow. So in the first gig when, you know, you were going to play in The Tonight Show, and he had had no band, how long had you been with Andre and uh, the Disciples prior to that gig? Was that your first major gig, or? That was the first time I'd ever played with Andre. <laughs> <laughs> I, I flew in. They picked me up in the tour bus. They took me over, and uh, here you, you know, go. <laughs> so we practiced the songs. They had a set of drums, and they, and then the next day they took the stuff into NBC, and uh, and set up. And you know, we played. The, we were supposed to do two songs. They ended up only doing one. And uh, I heard later that night, you know, because Andre had this set of drums for me. I heard later that night that his his drummer, who was still his drummer, turns on the Tonight Show and he sees his band. And I'm playing drums using his drums. I didn't know they were his drums. Oh my so gosh! That, that was a, that's a typical way of dealing with stuff that Andre would do. <laughs> Holy cow! My goodness! And that was my first time. And then Hadley and I flew back. And then we, you know, a few weeks later, we all moved out to California and started touring with him. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> You know, we're, we'll come back to Andre in just a little bit, but you know, around that time, you know, what year was that, Bill? Was that seventy? Nineteen seventy-two. No, seventy-two. You know, you know, 
either around that time or shortly after, you know, the, the Jesus music scene was just exploding in full force in California. And, you know, all, all I remember really reading was, you know, tons of hippies becoming Jesus freaks and, you know, born again Christianity. And so you heard guys like Keith Green, Larry Norman, Barry McGuire, who basically sang, you remember the, the song, The Age of Destruction, uh, Love Song, Second Chapter of it. All these groups, you know, they were making their move. In the, into this new, uh, genre of music. And, you know, what was, uh, what was your part in this whole thing? I mean, I mean, you were starting, you were being immersed into it with Andre, but what did you think about this whole movement that was happening? Well, I, I, I was just so happy to be, uh, able to play music every night and then to, to go in the studio, uh, where we, we, we had to budget and I could just, Pick any you know you could pick any musician mm-hmm. in town to come play with, and so that you know it was people that I I remember being a very young musician here in the Jazz Crusaders, and so to have Joe Sample come and play on Andre's records, who was the, one of the leaders of that band along with Wilton Felder, yeah. and to play with Dean Parks and David T. Walker and Larry Carlton and all these wonderful musicians, Michael Marty, and that we had access to. It was a great learning experience for me, and uh, and they kind of spread the word around, and Michael Martin was working with the second chapter of Acts, mm-hmm. and that, so I ended up playing with them, and uh, I, play, ended up, I played with Barry, who you mentioned, and toured on the tours with Love Song, and it was just a, a lot of activity, even yeah. though I was on the road a lot, and then when I was home, I was working on Andre's records. <laughs> I was still doing sessions for other people, if I could, so I would... I was I didn't turn down work because I loved it so much. So I worked all the time, really, morning morning to late at night. Wow, it's amazing. Well, going back to Andre Crouch, you know, he started playing piano in church, you know, very early, and you know, he gained his chops pretty quickly, and he was so proficient and fast in his piano movements. But you know, and he had a really unique style of playing, and it, it just really stood out. And I just wondered if you'd ever heard his style of playing before that, and what was unique about Andre as an artist. Well, I'd heard a little bit of that style. It was different but similar. When I was uh, playing in Las Vegas with the Third Avenue Blues Band, I became friends with Errol Garner. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would hang out with him, and he, I had an electric piano in my room, and he came by, and uh, he would play, and he that, that two-handed, big, full chords and block chords with the right hand sure. uh, going up and down. Uh, that's, Andre didn't was not dexterous on single notes with his right hand. He was chord-wise, he was dexterous. And it was so silly. It reminded me of Errol, but Andre played strong. I mean, he's like, he played harder on a piano than I'd say. So sounded like an orchestra. And the, with his gift of music, he didn't know the name of any chords. He didn't know what he was playing. Sometimes yeah. he wouldn't play the same thing. So it was hard on sessions to c- kind of coordinate the voicings because he would do it one way one time, another way another time, and every time was great. Uh, he was just a, just an incredible genius. I, I worked with some great arrangers later, Larry Mahobrak, who's an mm-hmm. incredible musician, and he said, there's really not a name for this chords. You know, I, I just have to say it's this chord over that chord with this in the bass. <laughs> and it, you know, he said, I've never heard anyone play this before. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can play those kind of things, but they're dissonant. Yeah. Andres weren't dissonant. They were, they, they always blended perfectly with the melody. So he was, he was amazing. So what you really had in essence were a bunch of guys that were trained and there were uh, readers trying to break down one of the, one of the chord uh, uh, bills from a guy that never really studied music. Yeah, he didn't know what he was playing. Um, no, it was, and they were just stunned by him. So we, you know, you have to write it out if you're doing recording sessions because 
sure. it's, it's, it's expensive. So you want to try to get uh, one, hopefully two, maybe three songs in a three-hour session. So if you don't have it planned out ahead of time, you'll never get it. And so I had to hire really deep arrangers like Larry Mohobrak or uh, Alan Ferguson and some of these guys that were strong uh, in order to capture the essence of what Andre was doing. Yeah. Help me out with this. Make sense out of this. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. You know, Bill, by the time, you know, you joined the band in, uh, in 72, you know, by that time, Andre Crouch and the Disciples had already recorded a couple albums. And I think the original band was... Of course, Perry Morgan, Ruben Fernandez, Billy Thetford, and Sherman Andrus, and uh, and then of course yeah, that, that was that was the yeah that was before Sandra joined. They'd done they had done actually three albums. Really, uh, the uh, live one. Well, no, let's see, they'd done two, and the third one was getting ready to come out soulfully. Yeah, right, with and, my pictures on the back of that, but I didn't play on that album. Got you. Okay, yeah, because the new iteration, of course, was. You know, Danabelle, Fletch Wiley on horns. You've mentioned Harlan Rogers, a keyboard. That was our band, the four of us that came in, Hadley. And Hadley and then Harlan. Sandra. Yeah. And uh, so so what was the what was the impetus? What what drove the change in the new lineup of uh of you know, did it have anything to do with Ralph Carmichael at that time in Light Records or was this Oh no, no, it was call? all Andre driven. Really? Uh, Andre always liked having a great girl singer on his Second album, he had Tremaine Hawkins, who was her name, her name was Tremaine Davis then, before she had married Walter Hawkins. And then Danny Bell, when I met Andre in, 19, in the late fall of 1971, Danny Bell was singing with him. He was already taking her on the road. She was, it was along with Billy Thetford was playing bass, and Perry mm-hmm. and Sandra were singing along with Danny Bell. Yeah. And so when we joined, Danny Bell was still there. So Danny Bell would uh, come out and maybe open and do three or four of her songs, and then she would stay with and sing with Andre. And Andre just kept, after that, he always had, a, after Danny Bell left, he kept having another girl singer. And then, uh, you know, Harlan and Hadley decided to move back to Oklahoma, so they left, and then Billy Thedford quit, and uh, so James Felix came in and played bass. It just kind of evolved, and then with James, we added, he had been in a band called Psalm 150, and we added uh, the horn players from that band, Glenn Myerskoff and Alan Gregory, and also their keyboard player, Mike Escalante. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of started getting bigger. And we added a, another singer, B. Carr, uh, and then, you know, it just kept growing. <laughs> well, the new band had just a fantastic sound, and you guys were playing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, you know, filling up places like, you know, the Hollywood Bowl and Carnegie Hall, and, you know, things were really going right for the Disciples at that time. Yeah. They were. We, uh, you know, we we made the uh, the last. Uh, I didn't realize until the recently somebody told me that the last album that we did was live in London. Yeah. Oh which wow. Was recorded uh, uh, right at the end of December of 1976. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, yeah, it was at the end of '76. It came out in maybe late '77. That was the last Disciples album. Well, the first one was live at Carnegie Hall. The second one was yeah, Take Me which Back. Which I wasn't there. You were not there then. Yeah. Then Take Me Back. I was not there, uh, but Andre didn't like it at all. He wasn't going to put it out. And they and they said, uh, they said Andre said, let me listen to the tapes. And they made him a copy of the 16-track. And they'd recorded his piano with a help and still pickup. So it doesn't pick up anything else around it. So the piano was isolated. So Andre just kept the piano. And this is the inside stuff. 
the piano and his vocal, and he had me replace the drums, and Hadley replaced Billy Beckford's bass, and he Hadley replaced the guitar. And the only <laughs> problem was that I had to play with Andre, and if the drummer, other drummer kind of sped up or slowed down or dropped the beat, I had to kind of fill in to make sense of it. But but that was my first really understanding production. Andre and I did that together. We replaced everything, fixed the background vocals, and it was, I guess, an all-white audience at Carnegie Hall, they told me. But, you know, we beefed up the audience and put it out, and everybody thought it was a black crowd because they were so boisterous, and that's was that's what that album broke Andre big. That was the big one. Yeah, that, that was the, the first one I produced with him would take me back, mm-hmm. which which did even better. Wow. And as an album, it was it was very uh, technically advanced as to what you had to do to make it sound right, huh? Yeah, we had an I had an engineer named Eddie Bracken who was uh, very experienced, and he taught me about things how to make tape loops out of crowds and and uh, you know how to how to how to and we because we didn't want it to sound like here's the song it fades out and here's the next song we want it to feel like you're sitting in the concert and you're getting a whole concert and you're from beginning to end. And uh, so we, it was technical how to learn how to do that, and I learned from Eddie. And I did a lot of live albums after that, and I still credit all the knowledge from, from Eddie's years of experience as a great engineer. I was just curious about why the Disciples decided to disband in, in 1979. I mean, you, you were one it of It really uh, wasn't a decision. Oh, yeah? I, I don't know that that, uh, that happened. Uh, it was like uh, Billy had gone. And we had the band, and Andre decided to do solo album. I think that solo album was uh, "I'll Be Thinking of You." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, put out a bunch of best of stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, then Perry Morgan decided to move to Sweden and stayed there for a bit. And uh, you know, Sandra was always going to be with Andre. That's his sister. Right. So it was kind of like they were they were gone. So then I was not as involved with, you know, caring about keeping that together because I was very busy, you know, I was doing Keith Green's records, I produced all of Keith's records. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then I, uh, Abraham Laboriel and I had started the band Koinonia together. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, really interested in that. So it was just, after that, it would be isolated tours that I would do with Andre. Sometimes I did them, sometimes I didn't. And I, I, quit, I quit producing Andre in 1986. Wow. Uh, just because it became too, he just started spending too much time in the studio. He he just would go in there and spend a year, and I I, I just didn't have it in me to keep it up. Yeah. I'd, I'd have we finish an album, we're getting ready to make master it, and he'd say, "I've got to redo my vocal," <laughs> and you go back in, and he and then he'd do that for on ten songs, and a month later, you're you're no further along, and uh, I just I didn't I I couldn't do it. So '86, I quit producing him, and I moved over to doing television music. Wow. And uh, I still would tour with Andre on occasion if he'd ask me. But it's just kind of, you know, it just, you know, he, he just started, you know, going a different way. Yeah. So things just happened the way they happened. And uh, it was yeah. not a real decision. Everybody just went through No, there were no there was no decision. Like, wow. it's yeah. over. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, and the management started billing it just as Andre Crouch. And, uh, you know, and the people, he couldn't really call it Andre Crouch and the Disciples because they were all gone except Sandra. Yeah. And then she didn't throw with him a lot of the time. Yeah, and it couldn't be called Andre Crouch and the Disciple. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it was Andre Crouch. It and, was. Uh, 
Yeah, you know, uh, you know, you fought, you were with him the whole time, as you're saying, you know, balancing your act of of uh, producing for others and arranging and drumming, and but also for for uh, for Andre. But still, I go back to that one. Let's call it, yeah, his first solo album, which is I'll, I'll be thinking of you. This album really changed the whole sound of Andre's music, and it sort of floored me because it went to a whole new level of production, slickness, professionalism, and. Are you the one who helped raise the bar, you know, including guys like Lee Sklar, Stevie Wonder, Philip Bailey, Tommy Funderburg, Graydon, Hungate, Abe, you know, these guys, Michael Lamar and Dean Parks. Was it you basically that brought them to the table to Andre? Well, Dean Parks, I brought in on my first album I produced, Take Me Back and David Hungate. Gotcha. So they had been a part of Andre's music all the time. Omar and, you know, yeah. I had been working with. And uh, yeah, I brought I brought those guys. I brought Lee in. Uh, Lee, I loved the way Lee played, and I thought he'd be great on these songs. But we had more money now to do the records uh, than we did because we started. The budgets were really small, and I didn't have a lot of time. We had more money to spend spend more time, and I, I'd gotten better. I'd learned more how to how to how to record, how to how to play better on sessions, and Andre got you know learned more. Philip Bailey was was a fan of Andre's and said, I'd love to come sing on a record, which was great to have Philip come in. And, uh, it was, we were all in there working together. And I, yeah. and so I, I mean, I, I guess it raised the bar. I don't know. I know we, were, we made the best record we could, yeah. but it was, it wasn't actually his first solo album because the first solo album is the first album Harlan Hadley and Fletch and I did with him, which is called just Andre. That's true. That's true. Yes, Exactly. Well, the the album certainly uh, piqued the interest of of I guess you could say the critics because it won a, a Grammy for best contemporary soul gospel album, right? Really? Yeah, I think that was yeah. The fir- actually the first album I produced won the Grammy. Take me back. Okay. Uh, that was, was unusual for me to just start something. That's how, that you know I I hadn't been a record producer. Andre said you're a producer. <laughs> he gave me that credit and title, and uh, that won a Grammy, and that's how I kind of got started producing. Uh, but so I think the second one maybe was. I'll be thinking of you. Yeah. Oh wait, no. The second one was uh, Live in London won a Grammy, and then I'll be thinking of you, and then uh, been mercy. the one we did, Don't Give Up for Warner Brothers won a Grammy, mm-hmm. and the last one I did with him, uh, No Time to Lose, won a Grammy, or the song from it Always Remember. So I, I had five Grammy winning albums with Andre. Wow, that's amazing, Bill. It's a, it was a sad year for us, you know, when and, you know all of us. Uh, when we heard that Andre lost, and you know, you were there every step of the way, as most people know. And uh, you know, tell us about you know you connected to his family and how close you were because you were there to the very end. I mean, this must have been totally well. Devastating. I loved, I loved him. You know, he uh, as great as he as he was musically, and he was great. Andre helped people, and uh, uh, he he gave so many people their start. They don't you don't they don't realize it, but. The big album, Love Alive, Walter Hawkins and, and the family with Tremaine, which just was still one of the classic albums. Andre heard their tapes and he got them their record deal. He was responsible for getting the, so many artists. Andre and I heard the Winans and we brought the Winans in and BB and CC and it just the list goes on. Donnie McClurkin and he uh, yeah. and he didn't take anything from it. You know, he just he loved putting the spotlight on other people. And it, it just, it continued. He let, he let people live in his house. Mm. The people he shouldn't let live in his house, they would steal from him. He just was generous and kind and, 
and loved having people around singing and, and uh, you know, being being a part of his life. And and so for, for that big heart that he had, he was like a little boy. I loved him. I loved his mother and dad. And Sandra, now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm there for her. Yeah. I try to take her chicken once a month. Like she has a chicken place she likes. I go bring it to her and spend time <laughs> with her. Spoke at her church a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I just, uh, you know, they're they're a part of my family. Yeah. So it was tough for me when Andre left, but uh, it was. A, I'm, I'm happy because he had been in a wheelchair and sick and, yeah. and bedridden, and he wasn't happy because he couldn't play piano uh, uh-huh. because of his. He had a foot infection and he couldn't play piano without banging his foot. Uh-huh. And so to take that away from Andre, you just robbed him of his life. So I know he's young now. In my belief, since I believe I'm Christian, I believe very much that he's in heaven. And that he's young and he's making great music and he's the happiest he's ever been. So for that, I'm happy. Yeah. But I miss being able to call him and mm-hmm. uh, check on him. Yeah, um, I'm sure. You know, it's, it's funny. You know, since we're speaking about him, you know, early this year I spoke to Sandra, and um, and we actually she had she had actually worked it out. So we we're going to have a chance to to interview Andre, but it never happened. Um, you know, things went the other way, and but we agree with you that uh, you know he's he's in a better place. So, well, anyway, yeah, yeah I, I believe he's very young and and, and alive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I actually I know that I was with him. I was with her when he transitioned. Mm-hmm. And I was with him. I was at the hospital every day that wow. uh, he was there, and uh, so it was it was it was a special experience because it was beautiful. Yeah. Well, changing gears a little, um, you were mixing, uh, engineering, and producing for people like you know Keith Green, the Alpha Band, uh, Adam Isaac, and you know Keith was another guy who left us you know way too soon. And tell us about your working with Keith. Well, he was intense. You yeah. know, he was uh, <laughs> Billy Ray Hearn. I'd never met him and never really heard of him. And I don't know what year this is. Uh, you got you know, research, but it might be nineteen seventy-five, yeah. seventy-six, mm-hmm. yeah. and. Uh, uh, Billy Ray Hearn called me, and I've been—I I was very good friends with Billy Ray Hearn, who, was, who had a label that he owned called Sparrow Records. And he said, "I've just signed a, a new artist, and he was going to sign with Clive Davis and uh, do a pop album, and, uh, and he wanted to do a gospel album with me." And I told him, "You can't do both. Make up your mind what you want to do." <laughs> and uh, Keith decided he was going to be in the ministry, and so he said, "I think you know." He said, "This guy's intense. He's hard to handle." But I think you might be able to work with him. And uh, so, you know, I remember when I first met Keith, the first thing he said, well, you're not my first choice. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, was, I was thinking about Bill Cheney, but I, I decided no. And then stuck hearing, uh, I was going to work with him, but I realized that we're both so stubborn we'd kill each other. <laughs> so you're, you're my third choice. And uh, so I said, oh, okay, let me hear, you know, what you got. And he played me some demo tapes. And they sounded really good, but they didn't. They were, there was not anything real unique about them. He sounded yeah. kind of like David Gates or with Bread, and it was, it was kind of big production demos with a lot going on. And I said, "Well, what have you been writing lately?" And uh, so he sat down and played and sang at the piano, and he was unbelievably good. He was great. He sounded different. He sounded so alive. And I said, "What? Why do you sound different?" here than you do on your demos. And he said, I don't know, I guess because, you know, we record the tracks and I stand up and sing. I said, well, you should sing sitting down playing piano. <laughs> it sounds better. 
and he said, "I think you're. I think you're going to be the guy I can work with." <laughs> so we started, and that, and that's what I did up until the, the day he died. Uh, he'd be in a studio, and we'd put a piece of plexiglass around in front of his face with a microphone and baffle the piano down, and he played piano and sang live on all the records. Wow, everything. And that's the way he sounded good, and that's. Uh, so the first album that I did with him, I would just cut the track till we got a good vocal. If we got a good vocal, then we moved on because I could fix anything else. I was in an isolation booth on the drums. Yeah. The bass was direct. We only cut with three pieces, and we went over to the guitars later. Yeah, that's amazing. That was, so that was that was my experience with Keith. Though I will tell you a funny story. I mean, Keith was intense. Yeah. It was hyper. You know, it's. Jewish people are hard workers and you know, incredible <laughs> people, but he will wear he would wear you out. And I was driving through Beverly Hills the other day with my wife, and I was telling her, "Yeah, Chris Christian used to have a studio up the street." And I remember that Chris was a great guy, gave us a very good rate on the studio when Keith was doing his "So You Want to Go Back to Egypt" album. Yeah, and the studio was a, a part of his house, kind of in a little compound in Beverly Hills, so. You know, we were recording every day there, and we had a background vocal session scheduled. And Keith and and I got there, and I think ahead of the singers, and the, and the doors locked, and or the gates locked, and, and there's nobody home. So Keith climbs over the gate and gets in. I guess there was no security. Jimmy's the gun locks the door, and we go in, and the studio's locked. We have the engineer with us, and he said, "Well, breaking the window was breaking the studio." And I said, "Keith, I'm not breaking in this guy's house." And he said, come on, come on, let's just break in. We've got a session. We've got people coming. I'll, I'll get someone out here to fix the glass and take care of it. I said, Keith, I'm not doing it. And so he did it. He broke the glass and broke in the studio. <laughs> and I locked the door. I said, what's Chris going to think when he gets here? And we went in about 15 minutes. Chris showed up. And Chris just started laughing. He said, nobody but Keith Green would have done this. <laughs> Broken into a studio of the producer. Broke, broke the glass, <laughs> broke into the house, broke into the... <laughs> I had to start my session. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's pretty nuts! And and you're crazy to follow him, right? <laughs> I was trying to just to keep all that energy, you know, in place and going in the right direction. But I loved him, and he was another one, just uh, incredible talent. And he he was a when I you know when I first started working with him, he was signed to April Blackwood Publishing, hmm. so he was a you know a songwriter, and he. When you sat down with Keith, he would when he wrote a song. As soon as he wrote the song, he wrote a lead sheet with the chords and the melody and the words, and he, you know, he he and he would demo it and he was ready to go. So, I mean, I I think he had forty fifty songs when I first met him that I, that I could pick from. Interesting. And then he any material would just come fast. He was extremely disciplined. He was like a ten pan alley guy going to go in a room and he'd come out whether good or bad he's going to come out with four or five songs <laughs> well I, t I can I can tell you that so you want to go back to Egypt is still uh, pressing the, in the mind of my wife because uh, <laughs> that's all she you know uh, she you know hums or whatever some, sometimes and she pulls out these these old 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 stuff that, that was good and I'm, and I'm like like where did you pull that from you know and so, there she was you know yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that the, you know <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that the music still is alive and, yeah. and it, that it sounds good today. I had no idea that uh, Keith Cream's music would be as popular. It's, I think he's it's pop, more popular now than ever. It is. It and, really uh, is. And that would live as long as it has. Yeah. And uh, that you know that's 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 really a blessing to me. Yeah. The same thing with Koinonia. Uh, my band. Uh, you know, I was in South Africa earlier this year, and 
all these musicians know every song. Yeah. And they're, you know, they want to play them with me, and they're playing Abraham's bass solos note for note. And I said, no, he would, he would remember that. Play anything you want. Yeah. But they just, really, they study this music, and it's still alive. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Hey, Bill and Eddie, let's take a break, and let's check out some music. And uh, I want to go back to 1989 to uh, Bill's band Koinonia, and uh, let's check out this track that was uh, sung by Lou Pardini, and this is We Know the Way by Heart. From our guest today, Bill Maxwell on Inside Music Cast.
your repertoire in discography over the years is it's enormous and you know you've worked with so many great artists as a drummer and producer and you know we don't have time to discuss them all but you know we'll, we'll mention just a few of them for you and, and and tell us a little bit about working with with each one of them and, and one I'm going to pick right off the top uh, Eddie and I are both located here in uh, Indianapolis and uh, an Indianapolis native is uh, Freddie Hubbard well what a what a what a great musician and uh, the best jazz trumpet player I, that I've ever played with and I yeah. think that I've ever heard. Uh, I met him at the Baked Potato when we were playing with Koinonia and uh, uh, Freddie came in. He used to come in and listen to us and I had the honor of, uh, at that time it had never been done. It's been done a lot since, but we did the first film session that was, uh, they, they, I think it was actual film, not video. Film, live recording, direct to two-track digital. Mm-hmm. With, a, with an orchestra and a horn section over at Ocean Way Studios that Alan Ferguson arranged. Uh-huh. And it was an honor to play with him. And Freddie and Abraham and I hung out together the the, the time. And I, I was amazed. And he could play piano, too. He sat down. He was an incredible yeah. musician. Yeah. Uh, and just a, a great guy. Another one that just kind of lost his way. And, you know, after he, he split his lip, he couldn't really play anymore, so it was a sad end for Freddie. But at his height, I, I just don't think there's been anybody better. Wow. Yeah, another uh, another uh, artist is uh, Kirk Whalem. That's one of my favorite saxophone players right there. I tell you, Kirk Whalem, he, he sounds like a soul crying when he plays that, that, that tenor. It's like a human voice coming out of it. Yeah. Uh, I met Kirk early on, uh, I mean, in the early 80s, and... In Los Angeles, he he subbed for Husto a few times with Koinonia, and then he uh, he played some sax solos for me on some projects I was producing. And I uh, then he's at, he asked me to play on on his record one time, and I toured with him a little bit. Uh, and uh, I just think Kirk is the greatest and the greatest guy. And uh, uh, right right now, the the most passionate tenor saxophone player besides Husto Mario yeah. for me. That's those, those are my guys. Yeah. There's another group that's actually a family uh, of brothers. Um, you started playing with the Winans. Tell us about your affiliation with them and working well, with Well, that's them. another family that's my family. Uh, I I did their first three albums, produced their first three albums. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I just love, you know, I love the way they sounded. Uh, they, and it's there. There's, there's another one I hear about, those records. I hear about these Winans records from every R&B guy. Uh, uh, Raphael Sadiq, who's a great musician, yeah. uh, the band Tony, 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 and produces everyone. When he met me, he said, all I listened to were the Winans. All those records is what I learned from him. And he just, you know, he would want to take pictures with me. And I mean, Raphael's famous. Nobody knows who I am. And he's, he, you know, at, at, at concerts, and he, you know, want me to work with him. And it just, it's all because of the Winans. They, these young, young R&B guys grew up here in the Winans. Boys the Men tried to sound like them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in my opinion. And there, there's so many influences of it. Uh, Marvin Winans is an incredible guy, great leader for the family, and a, I had fun doing those sessions. In a way, they were kind of like Keith Green sessions because I had them sing live in a booth, and I cut the tracks to exactly the way they sang. And then I replaced what they did, but I it, we we functioned. Those songs were not like the modern day. Now you go cut a track, and drums are like a drum machine, yeah. and this, and then you figure out what you're going to do vocally. No, these songs were tailored. These albums were tailored around their song. Yeah, and uh, I think that's why it lives. And we had real musicians. Like Steve Cavalloni played sax on it, and Abraham and 
my favorite rhythm guitar player ever, who's uh, not alive anymore, David Williams, hmm. uh, who did Billie Jean, and he's kind of famous for that that style. He worked with Andre, and I, he did all the Winans records with me. Yeah, very and, cool. Uh, you know, a project that uh, is very interesting to me was the the project you did with Elton John and Leon Russell called The Union. And uh, you're credited with arranging vocals and conducting on that one. And what can you tell us about this gig and how deep did you go with it? Well, it's T-Bone. You know, T-Bone's my brother and uh, <laughs> my dear friend. And it's like I, I did something recently uh, at the White House uh, with T-Bone. Yeah. And a uh, couple of the people, one, one, of, one of the girls, Rhiannon Giddens, is on it. She says... T-Bone's my fairy godfather, and uh, and uh, Colin Linden, the great blues, a great slide guitar player, who lives in Nashville, Canadian, said, you know, T-Bone's my guardian angel, and T-Bone just he he brings us all into great situations, you know. Yeah. And the thing about T-Bone, he puts you in there and just leaves you alone and lets you do the work and encourages you. He's just a a gentle soul who brings the best out in people. And he, you know, he called me and said, hey, I'm I'm. Uh, doing this album with Elton and Leon. Uh, why don't you come by and say hello to Leon? Surprise him. He's been really sick. And so they had already cut the tracks, and I, I didn't know that Leon had almost died and had brain surgery. And I went in the studio, and they were filming at Cameron Crowe had a film crew, and I saw Leon, and he looked like he was dead. And I started crying, you know, and then Leon saw me, and he started crying, and I hugged Leon, and I guess they saw the relationship that I'd had with Leon because Leon's a fellow Oki, and I'd known him uh, for a long time. Actually, he played piano on Andre's uh, yeah. uh, album, This Is Another Day, yeah. a few songs. And uh, so I saw Leon, and they they, uh, they said, well, you got to work on this with him. Wow. And uh, so I started, I, I brought in some, uh, T-Bone had actually called me to do something for uh, Greg Allman, and I had and they were in the same studios. Elton and Leon were in one, and Greg Allman's project was <laughs> in the other. Wow. So I brought in the girls to work on Greg Allman's, and uh, I told the girls, to, let's go say hello to Leon. And Leon was in the studio, and Leon said, you coming to sing on my record? And I said, well, we're actually doing this Greg Allman, but let me see if, you know, if T-Bone doesn't mind, we can do that. And so we finished the Greg Allman song, and, and T-Bone said, yeah, sure. So we went in, it was just Elton was gone, and T-Bone left just us and Leon, and Leon's kind of explaining what he wanted background vocal-wise. He said, you know, I don't want that slick thing. I want it like a Church <laughs> of God in Christ where they're singing, but somebody might switch parts. They might not, not always stay on alto, and they might move, and the soprano not, may not always be the soprano. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I said, yeah. oh, of course. And uh, I had great singers. I had Alfie Silas. I had uh, Judith Hill. Yeah. And I had Tata Vega. And uh, Gene Witherspoon was Gene Johnson. And so we just, they just started singing along. I said, well, look, we'll show you. Here's a chorus. And I kind of gave him a, you know instruction of where to put something. And I looked over, and Leon was crying like a baby. <laughs> it was like, oh, man. And so then I, when I went out and we finished the song and did one other one. And then I got a text from T-Bone. He came in and heard it, and he said, this is unbelievable. Cancel their other session. Just bring these people back. <laughs> I said, I can't, I can't. I've already hired 10 singers for the next day for wow. Elton songs. And he said, okay, because it was after a scale thing. And they were great. Elton was the same way. You know, it was like, hey, 
Billy do what you want. <laughs> and, he, and he would just go, yeah. And, and we, you know, they were, they were, you couldn't have asked for less demanding. They, you know, they were, they'd say, like, it was the music, do your best. So we did the best we could. And I had a great time with it. And I became, you know, affiliated with Elton after that because I put the girls on the road with him. And, uh, and they, they traveled for four years full time with Elton. Now they, they just do Las Vegas. But uh, so yeah. I've, it's a great relationship to build up with Elton, and still Leon is my yeah. is my buddy. I just saw him recently, and I'm you know I'm going to see him again. We we stay in touch. That's great. Well, you know your musical experience uh, ha- hasn't only uh, been performing live or in the studio, but you've you've been a musical director for television shows such as the Jamie Foxx Show, Martin, you know Living Single, uh, for Your Love, Amen, and many more. Uh, do you like working for television, whether live or recorded? I mean, do you have a preference? Well, I used to like doing television. Yeah. I don't think I'd want to do it now. Oh, yeah, it's a different I mean, game. Not, not sitcoms <laughs> anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the days that I started, 1987, 86 or 87, uh-huh. with uh, Amen, we had big budgets, and I could go in the studio again with Joe Sample and Abraham and uh, <laughs> right. Dean Parks. And I could and I could cut all these long music and I could edit it and play it in the shows and I was, so I was like having jam sessions every day. <laughs> that was a ball and get yeah. paid for it and putting it to picture. I love learning new things. So it was a, it was right before all the digital technology came in. But I learned how to synchronize tape machines and yep. fit them to picture and what worked with picture. And it was a great learning experience. Yep. And then when I you know I, I did several shows like that with live bands and which was great. We had the budget. Then with Martin, you know, I, uh, it came in that was serious uh, hip hop, and uh, so I had to convert to machines. And I didn't really enjoy being alone with them, you know, a synth, a machine, being by myself. I like being with the, with the band. Yeah. But I, you know, I learned how to do it and and approximate it. And then we, you know, I I did Paul Jackson and and uh, Greg Perry did the first year of Martin, but I did the next four. Mm-hmm. And then I spent five years doing a similar thing with Jamie Foxx. Yeah. And it it was great. Uh, for Your Love, I got to put a band in. But once it just became too machiny, and now it's they don't pay any money, and it's just one guy. Yeah. And, they're, and their music's two seconds or four seconds. And right. the only real reason you do it is to, for the money. And so at this point in my life, I want to do what I, what I enjoy. And so right now I enjoy playing music live for people and playing with great musicians, yeah. and, uh, whether it be in the studio or where I like being with other people. And that's what I'm going to do till it's my time to to go home to be with the Lord. I'm going to make music with other people. Very cool. Yeah, and I guess besides uh, besides maybe some uh, some kids television shows, there really aren't any themes anymore. You know, they <laughs> no, they cut that out. It's uh, yeah. And then and then basic underscoring. I've done a few movies in the last few years. I I did a, a movie called Fading Gigolo that uh, John Turturro directed with Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, came out a couple of years ago, and I've. I enjoyed it, but I felt like I, uh, the, and this is not an, uh, an insult to John because John's brilliant and he knows what he wants, but I felt like I was trying to create what he would do as if he was the musician. Yeah. And it wasn't, it's, it, it, I, I didn't feel like I was able to create for myself. It's, it's, but I think that was because he had, he had become so married to certain records and sounds and that anything other than that sound or that record wasn't right. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, John's a great director. The, my first, my first movie I did with him, Romance of Cigarettes. I had a lot of fun because it was more production, with you know singers and 
you know, it was more of a, a musical that uh, with James Gandolfini and Kate Winslet, and it was interesting. Uh, but uh, you know, for film work, uh, it's even that they demo everything, and so they get used to. You know, they might put a record or something from another film score in it, yeah. watch it back, and they get all in fruit. And then your job, if you take it, is to copy that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. And to, and to yeah. not, but not too closely, but to copy it. And anything different, so it, it's, a, it's a different kind of job. So even yeah. though I would, if I, if, if I was had the freedom or someone, you know, who gave me the opportunity to really create, then I probably would enjoy that. Though the films are also dirty now. I mean, it's really tough. <laughs> yeah, interesting. One of our correspondents uh, in Seattle, her name is Loretta Sassaman, uh, she, said, um, she said a lot of the newer bands today seem to want to carry the legacy of, of great West Coast sound. You know, she, and she mentioned a band like Chromio. And she said she'd love to know who you're listening to these days and, and that, are, that are sort of this new genre of West Coast. Anything, anything I haven't coming? been listening to new genre of West Coast. I probably should. Yeah. I've been finding myself, for some reason, you know, revisiting jazz uh-huh. and really listening to the the feeling of Elvin Jones and John Coltrane mm-hmm. and and some of the records I really liked and why I liked them so much and harmonies and uh, uh, Bill Evans and uh, so I've, I've just I haven't been I, I someone would have to give it to me and show me where to find it <laughs> but I'll, yeah. I'll do it. I, Unless I, you know, it's just like I'm kind of in my own world. I hear what I'm doing and the people that I'm playing with. Uh, but unless I just happen to catch something, I don't know. I, you know, I'm not as aware. I'm not checking out all the records. It seems like the music business is so diluted now. Yeah. And uh, you know, so I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not aware of new bands like I should be. Of course, I heard Snarky Puppy and yeah. uh, immediately contacted Corey Henry, the keyboard player, and said, I love Devin. So we've talked about playing together some. Wow! Uh, I, I just thought about I just thought about Corey Henry last night. I thought we've got to have him on the show because he's just. A, I think a he's fantastic. I, I I I followed him on Twitter and he wrote me right back and said, uh, you know, it's just the same. Bill Maxwell did the winings and <laughs> and let's get together. I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> That's the and way then, to go. Uh, there's a, another keyboard player. There's a lot of these young keyboard players, uh, so talented. Doobie Powell, who I met through Rafael Sadiq. Wow! It's just uh, he's a friend of Corey's. There. Just amazing talents. Yeah. Well, I'll have to um, – I'll mention a few names, and then maybe, Eddie, you can send uh, no doubt. Bill a, a message. But we've had yeah, a lot send of – Yeah, send me something to go listen to, and I'll, I'll check it out. I'm sitting here with my son's Pandora anyway. And, <laughs> no uh, doubt. Uh, but I'd, I'd love to hear some – you know, any of that carrying on the legacy. I guess you would consider Koinonia West Coast, but I actually consider Koinonia – Three Okies and three South Americans, <laughs> and, and, and I really, I said, like Abraham said, we're from the South and the Deep South. <laughs> exactly and, and right. I, that puts you somewhere in Guatemala. That does yeah, exactly. So I, I never thought of it as California because I'm still when I play drums, I'm still an Okie, and I, same with Harlan and Hadley, and that and. Abraham's still a Mexican when he plays bass. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you still make Oklahoma proud, Bill. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, I love Oklahoma. <laughs> well, you know, Bill, we've covered an awful lot of ground, and, uh, you know, we've, I know that you're, you're busy. And, uh, you know, I, I do want to, you know, lastly address uh, just one last little thing. And you alluded to this just a few minutes ago that um, a few, w- several weeks back, I was watching TV, and I, I saw you playing drums at a, a really, really neat evening for uh, President Obama and uh, the First Lady at the White House. And it was uh, an evening of gospel music, and they had a select group of, uh, of talents. And, uh, and you were right back there, uh, 
you know, just uh, creating music you know, for the president there. Tell us about that experience. That that sounds that sounds like, sounds like a really well, cool. Thank, gig. I think it's a good way to end. It was a beautiful experience, and, and thank you, T Bone. Uh, mm-hmm. T Bone called me and said that he had a job uh, uh, at the White House, and first he wanted me to to put together work with her singers. And I said, you know, anything you want me to do, T Bone, I like to do it. And then we talked, and uh, he liked my ideas, and so. Uh, they set up a meeting for me with the executive producer, and the executive producer said, well, the drummer that T-Bone uses, Jay Bellarose, said he's not the guy that you're the guy to be playing drums, so could you be music director and play drums? And I said, yeah, that's kind of what I've always done. And uh, So we had, they, had a, already had, they had already been booking artists. Uh, they had you know some of the artists confirmed. Yeah. The problem was some, of the, some artists that they wanted didn't get clearance for one reason. You know, there's a real security, not security, but there's a clearance issue. I guess if you ever, you know, had uh, an arrest or a, a tax thing or yeah. whatever, that you know, so the lineup was changing from what you know from when I first came involved. Interesting, interesting. But uh, there were there were really you know all the artists were were really good, interesting artists, a variety. I love it, and and Emmylou uh-huh. Harris and Rodney Crowell and yeah. uh, Aretha Franklin. Tamela Mann, who's an incredible singer, uh, uh, Michelle Williams. Yeah. I'm leaving out somebody really good yeah, here. Sure. Uh, Shirley Caesar and Rance Allen. Right. Uh, and uh, so it was, uh, and uh, Rhiannon Giddens, who I, I really liked. So the experience was was great fun. You know, I got together, figured out the music ahead of time, and I flew to D.C. I took the keyboard players, a wonderful organ player I met that used to be Raphael Sadiq's organ player and hmm. keyboard player and Tony Tony and he played at Andre's funeral and then Carl Wheeler and I just was in love with the way he played I took Carl with me to D.C. and we rehearsed with a local choir the, for a, a day ahead of everybody and then the different artists oh Darling Love was there too yeah. the different artists started coming and uh, we rehearsed their songs they set up a, a uh, in a ballroom at the Mayflower Hotel. It was almost the same size as the East Room where we were playing. Mm-hmm. They set up a stage and the piano and everything just like it with the PA so we could get the feel of the room. Yeah. And we just started rehearsing for a couple of days and then went in and recorded live. And no fixes, put it out. Wow. You know, they <laughs> edited the show down. But it's an honor to... I played at the White House with Andre in 1979 for Jimmy Carter. Yeah. It's an honor to be back and it was an honor to meet the President and the First Lady and uh, to be included in that. Yes. And uh, afterwards, the Kaminsky brothers who produced this, Bob and Peter Kaminsky, they called me and they've asked me to do another one uh, in October. Uh, it was kind of initially called The Great American Songbook with different artists that they were going to have. They had uh, uh, Audra McDonald doing Billie Holiday. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it turns out that I'm going to be in uh, Japan uh, with my band Open Hands uh, with... Uh, we're taking Paul Jackson Jr. and Luis Conte with us, and we're wow. and Patty Austin and uh, Patrice Russian, and I'm doing a series of wow. concerts in Japan, so I won't be able to do the White House right the, the, the same week. But the, these guys produce a, a, a lot of music specials from the White House, and they've asked me to be the music director. They've asked me to keep working with them. Wow, that's cool. So hopefully I get to do that. So it's another great opportunity to T-Bone. Yeah. Regarding Angel Fairy Godfather, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. brings along. <laughs> Steve just, you know, he blesses us with 
with these things. Well, he's an amazing guy. He's a, he's definitely a connector, and uh, and you're the benefit of it. And you know, we just want to thank you, Bill, for spending so much time with us and opening up and telling us the, these neat stories. And uh, you know, we're going to keep uh, keep keep in touch with you and see what happens there. And uh, we hope that you have a great tour over there in Japan when it comes out. Well, thank you. And if uh, you, if they play this in Scandinavia, say hello to. All my friends in Scandinavia, I spent so much time in Scandinavia, and I was always growing up, I, I, the Maxwell name is Scottish, and I knew I was Scottish, and some Irish, and, uh, but I finally had a DNA test recently, and I found out my largest percentage was Scandinavian, so I knew there was some reason <laughs> in my that. connection, but uh, uh, I love Norway and Sweden and Denmark and Finland, you know. That's, oh, well, you we know, have... Uh, we have two correspondents here at Inside Music Cast uh, that are that are in uh, Sweden. One is uh, Mikhail Engström, and we have Mats Uniland. So they'll be happy uh, well, to hear those that. Are my, those are my people. Hopefully, <laughs> I, love, I love being in Scandinavia. Well, Bill, thanks so much for spending so much time with us. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you guys for having me, and uh, right. God bless everybody. And we'll we'll keep in touch. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Special thanks to Bill Maxwell for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Mikhail Ingstrom, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Uniland for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.